welcome to Calling on Words podcast. I am Nirali and today let's talk with Bhavya about how she colored her words. So I went on a trek uh, just on Sunday and I kind of went for it alone and then eventually of course found friends over there. But that was sort of a, like in love itself, it was an adventure for me that uh ride from my home to uh, the place where the trek was going to take and it was like 5 a.m. in the morning and never had I stepped that early on in the morning within my city if it was not for a flight that I needed to catch so mm-hmm. yeah I felt like oh wow this is a new side of my city that I'm seeing that's great did you go alone or did you go by their car? Oh, I can't walk also till there, right? It's uh, an hour away uh, from even by car. Mm. But even doing that one hour ride in a cab uh, in the morning was also like after such a... I had not taken a morning flight since January. So, mm-hmm. and last time I took a morning train was in February. After that, I've not traveled at all. So it just oh, wow. felt like, uh, I, I just felt a little bit like myself, but while also having this small adventure. That's great though. So today we have a guest, Vishakha, and let me first ask you, how did you color your words? Well, hi everyone. Um, so my definition of coloring walls usually includes being um, myself or yourself in a very unapologetic manner. Um, so I roll with that, whether it comes to making friends or doing my job or even how I might watch TV, whether it's upside down on the couch or sitting straight up. Uh, but that is how I color my walls. Like that was the flavor of the day today. Where I was just like hang out upside down on the couch with a couple of kids and watch TV. A lot of Peppa Pig. So that's how I color my walls. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Peppa Pig, I'm sure. What about you, Nirali? Uh, what, what did, did I do? You do? That's what I'm saying, Bhavya. Last since last time, it's very difficult <laughs> to answer this question every week. <laughs> Come on, tell us something silly you did. I mean, maybe you just... You know, put salt yeah. in your coffee instead of sugar. I don't know. It can be something as little as that, right? Well, uh, I don't know if it's very different or not, but I do go out, uh, visit places alone. I know a lot of people don't like to uh, go around the city or go to cafes to eat or something. So since I'm an expat living here, I do go out alone a lot to visit one place that was on my list and just there have a nice brunch by myself and uh, yeah spend time like that which is not loner one of my friends called it loner I'm like this is not loner it's probably more solo and it's like nice to have solo adventures right uh because you get to yeah know your own thoughts you can't always depend on a company hear yourself out right instead of just uh, listening to other people Speaking of experiences, in today's episode, we're talking about the experience of design. Whether it is inclusive or not, what does inclusive design look like? And in today's digital times where we're consuming insurmountable information on a daily basis through our phones, tablets, computers, and so on and so forth, how the design of that interface affects 
our consumption of the knowledge, our navigation through the knowledge, and even our daily habits. So today we have our guest, who's Vishakha, or we. She's a UI UX designer, and let's begin with her introduction. Well, as Nirali said, my name is V, um, but my full name is Vishakha. I live in the United States, which is why I have ended up shrinking my name down to V, because people struggle with saying my name. Um, I moved here almost 12 years ago now, and I have um, since then graduated with a couple of degrees and have been working as a user experience designer. Um, what attracted me to this field is that it focuses a lot on people and their psychology before telling them what they need. Um, it is very oriented towards individuals, groups of individuals and their needs before, you know, I guess, um, prioritizing profits or like somebody else's needs and wants. Um, so it is super inclusive and it caters to important things that people also value, thereby making it like a worthwhile investment for anybody to be um, a part of this field. Um, as far as me go, me goes on a personal note, I live with a dog and two cats. Um, I live in Austin, Texas. It's hot <laughs> three months of the year, as much as people would like to believe differently about Texas. Um, and it is fairly boring right now, thanks to COVID, but there are like excellent trails and hikes around here. So that is where I spend most of my time with my dog. Um, that is my current state of life. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. You've got fuzzy animals around you. You have the best COVID time. <laughs> I'm like, I want a pet around me. Just <laughs> somebody to hug. So tell us more about UI UX, like what it is and how does it impact in our daily life? So let's see, I think I want to say UI UX became more important and became relevant to almost everybody's day-to-day -day life with the advent of the iPhone around early 2000s. Um, as soon as the computer became a pocket-sized object and as soon as we were able to um, you know, distribute that kind of computing power and access to information to an, every individual and like literally put them in their back pocket, um, UI and UX, user interface and user experience, became something of the forefront um, in the early 2000s. Now, like I mentioned in my introduction, it is something that focuses on people's psychology. So as far as like software goes, um, understanding how people perceive interfaces, what they expect um, when they when you know they put their finger to a screen, um, press a button on the keyboard, or even move their mouse around helps define uh, is all a part of their experience. So like understanding UI and UX and in the process, knowing the people you're building for um, just helps make sure that it is something that'll get adopted without people even thinking about it for a second. It becomes second nature. Uh, it's like breathing. And Apple is like king of nailed user interface and experience on that front. Why has uh, Apple uh, been able to sort of, even though Microsoft was uh, the first, like the first company in the game, why was Apple able to capture user interface uh, so successfully? So Apple did like very clever things compared to Microsoft. Microsoft didn't start out in the worst place possible. They did a very good job of mimicking everybody's day-to-day paper-based life very well um, with their office products except they went too far. 
um, you know, doing math on paper is fairly easy. You read the number, you punch it into a calculator and you're done with. But ex- you guys have used Excel. And if you haven't, try it. It is not the same as looking at numbers and using a calculator. Um, so somewhere, I think, I want to say like in the mid-2000s, even Microsoft went through a complete gut job of their office suite. Um, and they ended up gamifying it, which is like a whole different conversation. So I'm going to stay away from that right now. Um, but what made Apple so great at this game was because they just made everything that was digestible um, to a simple, curious mind. You don't have to be Einstein to figure this stuff out. All you need to do is find the courage to tap your screen. And that was it. There was no self-destruct button that Apple offered. There were no unknown consequences that came from these new types of interactions people weren't used to. Um, but they just provided a pleasant experience, basic concept of positive reinforcement, and they baked in the habits of um, touch interactions for the rest of our lives. Um, and they've done it so successfully that even when they take away something as monumental like their home screen button that we were all so used to, uh, people complain for all of 15 seconds. Because um, the transition over to Face ID and not having the home screen button was a very tiny learning curve. So that's how easy they make it because they study their people well enough. Mm. So that's why Apple wins out a lot more than Microsoft does at this. I see. So it's it's very, very much end user oriented. You have to know your end user profiles and you have to study them well, which brings mm-hmm. me to my next question that how much is inclusivity important in this? Since our topic today is what we're talking about on a bigger umbrella of inclusive design, then how much of inclusive design plays a role in it? So when I ask you guys, listeners, to think about a human, you don't always imagine a human who's possibly missing a limb or is unable to see or, you know, unable to hear. Um, It is not our normal, um, to put it in air quotes, um, but it is a normal. It is a normal for tons of people on this planet, and it is something that we cannot discriminate on just because we chose to develop our technology a certain way. Um, information is free. Um, everybody should have access to it. And when you stop denying access, or I guess when you start denying access to certain forms of information, you have civil riots and governments get overthrown when you do that kind of thing. Um, disabled community and um, the less abled wouldn't do that, but it doesn't make it all right to discriminate on that basis. So as, mm-hmm. par- as, a, as a designer, I take my job fairly seriously where um, my 80-year-old grandma should be able to read the text as well as you and I can because our eyesights are still great, relatively. Um, <laughs> my eyesight is pretty short, but which helps my job, actually. So yeah, that's why inclusive design is important. Uh, we should not um, forbid somebody from being able to complete their tasks or you know, suffice their curiosity just based on how we chose to design software. How do you design then when your uh, client base is so uh, diverse? Because for me as a designer, where I get a focus on sharpness is defining that one person I need to design for in case of textiles and garments. But uh, in your case, uh, your whole uh, client base is so diverse how do you find focus um, 
in design. So I guess for you, your canvas is limited to your textile size, right? Um, I have no limitation like that. My canvas can extend in almost any direction, including depth, um, the 3D axis, uh, limitlessly. So trying to, you know, be stingy on space and text sizes and colors just for the sake of aesthetics seems to be, at least to me, um, not the best reason to skimp out on inclusivity. Um, mm. If I decide to make a text, for example, um, the golden standard for the internet is about 16 pixels size text. Um, it is considered to be the most inclusive um, and uh, readable by almost um, any condition kind of text size. Um, making something 16 pixels, yes, takes up a lot more space than something that is about six points smaller at 10 would but also does it really hurt anyone to have that size? Um, does it hurt the aesthetic? Maybe, but we're designers. We're meant to push the boundaries and like break these um, norms that we know of. Mm -hmm. And with a limitless canvas, trying to impose um, boundaries that are just um, at this point legacy seems a little short-sighted. Mm, I see. So it's like, you have to go beyond the convention to incorporate certain inclusive design elements. And you have to, what you said, challenge the norms again and again. Because the, uh, the earlier norms were not based for all, considering inclusivity. Yeah. What other features do you incorporate? If you can give us an example to, like you mentioned, it's about the text size. And what are the, the features is there that uh, indicate inclusivity in the UI UX design? So one thing that has just happened um, because of uh, very vocal advocates of um, inclusive practices uh, throughout the years, as even the hardware has evolved, um, the software that it comes with now has some accessibility tools built in. Like you have screen readers almost default to any operating system. Um, Microsoft mm -hmm. has its version. So does Linux and so does um, OS, uh, Mac OS. Um, now, these software and these built-in capabilities need um, to be told a certain way on how to read um, your screens and how to operate based on voice. Voice UI is a booming sector of user experience where like, you can actually tell your computer do a thing. Um, and it's pretty cool. But you also have to know programmatically in and out how to make sure that these um, built-in support systems can actually support your software. Um, so as designers, I think uh, generally being familiar with the state of technology, even though we're not programmers, to be clear, um, helps not because we're the ones implementing the code, but because we can at least serve as gatekeepers for our developers to make sure that they do um, the code. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of relationship I have had with all the developers that I've ever worked with in the sense I am very quick to call them out that they're missing their ARIA labels and that we cannot have a browser read this website out right. Mm -hmm. um, they don't always like me for it, but also I don't care. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that is what I think as designers, we can contribute, like um, making sure that inclusive design is actually something that we consider in our day-to-day -day life. Mm, I see. I remember like when this whole Zoom conferencing took a boom in the starting of the, in the April, May of this year, uh, there was some Twitter tweet about by a person who said that 
he was a i think he was a black person and uh, when you do a virtual screen virtual background in the zoom right so uh, the program didn't recognize his face at all with the virtual background but on the same laptop with the same background a white colleague's face was completely recognized so it was a big deal that again we're coming down to how you what programs you are programming you're not taking in consideration about the various kinds of people so does this also happen with the voice uh, program development before i get into that i actually have a very interesting anecdote attached to like skin colors uh, mm-hmm. this is an actual story in the sense it's factual um i'm not making this up uh, but have you guys like if you guys have ever been out to public restrooms some of them have the sensor operated um sinks and flushes yeah right yeah. like where you just move and the thing goes off mm-hmm. um so now because this was developed by white people <laughs> it is for white people so if you ever wear the color black and sit down in front of it the thing will not flush like you literally have to do a whole salsa number in front of it to make it work <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah, and I'm not quite that dark skinned person, but I am brown, also fairly light brown now thanks to years of no sun in this country. Um I still have to do the freaking salsa every time I go uh, to a public restroom because this thing just won't pick up on my existence, which is unfortunate. Um yeah, so about skin color, that is interesting in the sense white people making um softwares and objects for white people is a fairly narrow perspective that has existed for a very long time and yeah. as more and more people recognize it and more they're becoming vocal about it and these things are shifting slowly uh now as far as software goes um i know uh black people come from a variety of geographical locations but in the americas in particular we have a few different accents that run uh, that are fairly common mm-hmm. um not even just amongst black people but amongst the whites too um and there is constant issues with voice assistants with um screen readers and what have you not understanding these different accents even um localization efforts fail where Siri in India cannot understand yeah the indian people that Correct. it serves it is yeah. um Yeah and that is just a consequence of like a very narrow sect of humanity designing such mm-hmm. big impact technology. Yeah that's that's actually what we were talking about right that makers do uh, affect yeah. uh, what they are making because they are also coming from yeah. their lived experience whatever you put out rationally per se and I'm quoting rationally it's gonna come through yeah. your personal experience to from some point or the other. So Uh, that was a next question that how and what ro- role is in the diversity and inclusivity in the designing team play on the outcome of the product because i know your team is very diverse is gender sort of gender balanced and so and from your work experience what have you observed so like that's the whole baseline of inclusive design like in the sense that it is not just you know a catchphrase um or like an SEO friendly term to like throw out there but is a whole movement and a way of thinking that has courses attached to it that has methods as to like how to be inclusive um from most any perspective related to anything that exists on a computing device mm-hmm. um they are very elaborate courses honestly um fairly interesting stuff too like microsoft has a whole um program available for free on their website um so does IBM so like 
these big, you know, legacy dominates most of the tech space kind of companies pay attention to this because it's really freaking good for business. And you cannot get sued if you're thinking about everyone. Um, you know, <laughs> that's the reality of it. Um, so like coming back to your question and just like talking about um, diversity and inclusivity, it's just the basic principle of having multiple perspectives on a team. Um mm-hmm. So the software that my team works on is a basic web-based app. Um, it doesn't do anything fancy. It is not quite as um, complex as, say, Excel even. Um, now, because it is so simple, I think it's fairly low-hanging fruit to be inclusive. Um, there's mm-hmm. like really no excuse for the kind of simplicity we maintain to not be inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, our client base tends to be the older um, tech-averse community and that's okay um i take it as my personal mission to make these people like technology and not try to slam their computers shut right Mm -hmm. um but i think the biggest changing point for me that i've percolated onwards to my team and any designers i've ever mentored since is when i was asked this question at a conference like how would you like using this website when you're 80 years old and i was like oh my god i would hate this thing like the text is too small, like these colors are all the damn same. I can't pick up on what's going on. Um, so that kind of did it in for me. And that question, thankfully, was asked of me very early in my career. So I've just been very staunchly attached to it since then. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we just like think about it in a basic linear manner, whatever we're creating today, we're going to have to deal with here in a few years. Yeah. Um, yep. We're getting older. You know, our physical capabilities are going down. It may not be as adverse as like losing a limb, but who knows what will happen tomorrow, right? Uh, Not to be really dark about And also that statement is uh, true, more true this year than any other year. Yeah. Like, my God, this year is like living testament to that statement. Like, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Um, Yeah. So... You know, I, I think of it like just financial planning for retirement kind of situation. Just let's make sure I can use the tools when I can, when I do need to be able to use these. Exactly. And it's so, it's so a parallel to like what you're choosing right now is ultimately going to affect you later personally on, on a very personal scale. And for you as a designer, you know what you're going to design now will come back to you. Yeah. eventually and you'll feel oh shit this i can't think i can't operate with this it's a shitty design and you are yeah. the one who designed it especially because i'm in a state of like influencing the future yeah. generations of designers like i'm just now hitting my stride in that capacity so i just want to make sure that the design for a very old wrinkly raisin state me in the future so, <laughs> yeah i'm gonna try That's... at it no but then uh but then uh do you on a personal level does it ever feel that oh you're carrying this burden uh that uh you must think of everyone and you can't be uh you can't be uh, as creative or uh, make something as aesthetically pleasing or is it more fun now that you get to be uh design something that be of service in uh as opposed to something that you know would be very exclusive i get asked that question a lot um and honestly sometimes i get surprised when i'm asked that question mostly because i'm a trained designer my whole job is to be creative under constraints 
Um, I went to school for graphic design, though it has nothing to do with software design um, on like a very high level. It is still creativity with constraints. You are you were limited by paper size, for example, when it comes to a poster. Like maybe you can um, afford full color printing versus you're gonna have to suck it up and deal with a grayscale poster, but you still have to get creative with it and make sure it's an eye-catching object. Um, so having these accessibility guidelines, especially from people who are who've been researching this for decades altogether and have been at the forefront of it, um, along with uh, as the peripherals and the softwares have um, evolved, I there's so many rules that it doesn't necessarily yeah. feel like it's constrained. For me, mm. like yeah, for me because limitations have always stimulated creativity. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I guess your limitations are very different from like what the limitations of somebody who's designing a physical product might be dealing with. But then there mm-hmm. are limitations that sort of stimulate and lets you express that sort of creativity. You know, this is actually very interesting since uh my I since when I came to Singapore I started designing on a very different canvas. In Singapore, the land is treated very differently. You can just wipe off everything and start designing. There is no negotiations involving the ownership or anything. So what happened when we came, we were given a site and we were told we could do anything with the site. Basically, no rules, no constraints. And I'm like, oh shit, this is so tough. Because yeah. if you are not giving me limitations, the creative product won't be as yeah. uh, deep or as Fruitful. And it will be a longer process to reach to that level than having the contextual limitations and anything. So this was the question that I was asked in my interview. So like, what was different from your designing experience in India and designing experience in Singapore? I'm like, this, I need limitations to actually feel good about my product. In India, there are thousands, millions yeah. of limitations about every kind of aspect, physical, social, economic, everything. And when I came here, I think I got too much freedom to do anything and which was like, you're lost in a vortex. Like, what is happening? I need some anchor. I I add limitations whenever I'm designing. I add like, oh, this needs to be zero waste or this needs to be this or this needs to be uh, mm. this extra uh, layered, this thing. So uh, that what it does is then I come up with more focused ideas instead of coming up with things that are all over the place. But yeah. So, I mean, that was, that is one thing, right? Whether you look at it as a limitation or whether you're looking as a, as a stepping stone for your creativity, having, incorporating inclusivity in designing, whether it's through environmental sustainability or through user experience or yeah. through any kind of uh, aspect, it adds to your product. It adds yeah. ultimately to your design satisfaction as well, I think answering to your earlier question we took on a project where uh, we sort of asked um, artisans to design the textiles i just created the mood boards uh, for for it and the, the textile design they come up with i could not have designed those textiles ever on my own because uh, they knew the craft inside out so mm-hmm. uh, how do you get people involved on an intellectual uh, uh, understanding is also important because that also gave them a sense of ownership instead of just being yeah. you know uh, treated as laborers and uh, 
coming from that, I think I can also ask uh, Vishakha is, uh, what do you, how do you make sure that your teams, uh, uh, your team members are feeling uh, included in, in all the sort of decision making? Okay, so I love this conversation about, um, you know, generally having rules to be more creative kind of thing. Um, so in design, we have a couple of different methods that we follow in the um, and these are like very prescribed in the sense, um, like Google has something called design sprints where they have very specific activities that all stakeholders um, go through. Stakeholders tend to include the designers, the people who are going to build the software, um, the people who are going to use the software, the people who are going to pay for this thing, and even the people who pay my salary. Um, so when we go into a room to try and figure out what is it that we're going to build and how is it going to be, especially when it is a feature that's about to sink like six months of our work time, um, we tend to go through several of these collaborative meetings um, and I borderline on the mildly extroverted side of the spectrum and my team were like all of us are fairly introverted but because I talk to people as a part of my job I lean extrovert uh, I'm usually the one who makes sure that everybody speaks their mind even the quiet ones um, a simple thing and I know I'm getting into like a very tactical suggestion here uh, for me is to open up several methods of communication in a meeting. Um, not everybody's comfortable speaking their minds in front of a group of people, and that's all right. Um, so I run like anonymous um, whiteboards where people can just write what they want to instead of having to speak it out loud. Um, but as my, uh, my job as a moderator is to make sure that I read all these things and mm -hmm. make sure they're discussed um, in their fullest. So it's inclusiveness and not um, the way we were just discussing about abilities and what have you not, but it is kind of um, a shortcoming of said person to not be able to speak in front of a crowd and like include them in these conversation and solicit their expertise and intelligence um, is something that those who are um, lucky enough to be in a leadership role should possibly like just adopt as a part this of their job. This is a great idea. Anonymous whiteboards. I think yeah. I'm going to steal it for our next charade that we conduct. Yeah. I'm going to steal this idea. <laughs> it's great. I, and, and it took me back to kind of like how I wish it was there in our studios also because there were some people, some students who were not as comfortable speaking out loud. 10 out of 10 recommend this thing called Miro, M-I-R-O. It's very good. And yeah. again, coming to its interface, it's really easy to play around, to put up your ideas, to project. What is Miro? It's a virtual whiteboard. You can draw, write, color. It's like MS Paint on a whiteboard. Yeah. It's really great. Super basic, but great. A <laughs> next question that I want to ask you is that does UI UX have power to become like a advocator or tool of mass education or advocating ma uh, social environmental justice? I have to very firmly and enthusiastically say yes. Like even the fact that we're doing this interview across three time zones <laughs> on based on technology <laughs> is like a testament to like how pervasive this whole field is, even without you having mm. to think about it. Um, even let's see when I first started my job at the company that I work at right now they had never had a user experience designer or even understood what it meant to design for experience was 
Um, so as an introduction to what is it that user experience designers do, I asked the room a question and the room was all 60 of my coworkers. Um, how many people have their mothers on Facebook? Almost the whole room raised their hands. And the whole purpose of like asking this question was like, your mom is more likely to be pissed off at you for not accepting her friend request than not answering her call. <laughs> So that is how ingrained technology is in our lives. And it is like, it is extremely um, short-sighted, silly, blind to ignore the fact that it is a part of your lives. Um, no matter who you are, how you are, everyone is influenced by technology in some way. Uh, that being said, user experience designers, if we keep on limiting ourselves to what the common notion of experience and interface design is, which is we make things look pretty, um, is not going to work out great for us. Like, I understand that there's a whole subset of people mm -hmm. who thrive in that uh, definition of this field, and that's all right. Uh, but the um, leaders in the field, the ones who have been since the birth of it, um, and the ones who have studied it more deeply, like the ones who truly understand how psychology of a person and their abilities can come into play when it comes to interacting with softwares are the ones who can truly influence um, the impact of it. For example, Facebook, um, back when this started, came under, uh, they received a lot of congratulations for making mm -hmm. such an addictive thing. All they did was figure out the biological response to getting um, yeah. approvals, right? Yeah. To getting appraisals. And they made that the basis of this whole addictive experience in the sense you get likes, you post things and you're more popular and it feels really good in your brain. Mm -hmm. So you keep on doing this. Um, as we're realizing the long-term <laughs> effects of it, uh, I would totally blame the user experience designer, also known as the dude whose last name starts with a Z, um, for having developed this really, really wicked experience where it's addictive to a point that yeah. you cannot get rid of it. Um, so we're like at the sugar and yeah, cocaine yeah. kind of situation that you know it is, you know, not entirely good for you, but you also cannot get rid of it because, like, your brain is freaking hooked onto it. So, yeah. So I, I actually mm -hmm. then... Uh, I always been wondering, especially since I've watched the Netflix documentary uh, 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 social media, I guess, uh, where how, does that mean that we now need to make the interface more difficult for us to sort of unplug from this addiction interface of, say, scrolling or, or just like uh, a this content that is thrown at us at such a rate where like we are not our minds are not built to absorb uh, sh should the interface be made more difficult now in full transparency i haven't watched the documentary yet as much as many times as i try to i just feel like i'll come out of it so sad <laughs> so i just don't watch it just avoiding this very real um problem um but uh, I'm trying to pull up this very interesting statistic about how much information is consumed on a daily basis in the United States. Um, let's see. An individual consumes 34 gigabytes of data daily. <laughs> Short circuit right here and there. 
Yeah, and this is just like a conservative estimate. Oh. Like this is not the upper yeah. end or the lower end. This is somewhere between the middle and lower end of the spectrum. And in 2008, like the first year this um, research was done by this uh, How Much Information Project. Yeah, uh, these are researchers at UC mm-hmm. San Diego. Um, in 2008, <laughs> 3.6 zettabytes. I cannot verbalize what a zettabyte is. Highly recommend Googling this because there are some fascinating infographics on the size mm-hmm. of a zettabyte. Um, it is comparing the sun to the moon wow. kind of ratio. That's how big a zettabyte is. So 3.6 zettabytes, not one zettabyte. <laughs> Not 1.2 zettabytes, but 3.6 zettabytes of non-work-related information. So pure entertainment and other possible nonsense and garbage um, was consumed in 2008 by U.S. households. Wow, that's 2008. That is huge. Yes, and it has only grown since then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And this is a part of uh, this article I wrote up a while ago where uh, what do you do when information is so easily accessible yeah. for everyone in looking into all of this like I learned that there are different kinds of learners and I think um, the general consensus was that people fall into like one of five categories that there are and these categories range generally from the ones who will consume information without a thought to the ones who will just deny the informations outright because they want to validate mm-hmm. it for themselves And the spectrum generally covers um, how curious or how, what is the word, Um, you know, how how much do you want to look into something? I forget the one word for it, but uh, yeah, so that's the spectrum that they cover. So now that I learned about this and I have a general grasp of the population psychology about their consumption Mm -hmm. habits, I can start orienting design against this. So let's take Instagram, for example, um, off late with the U.S. elections being a thing. And we know sure. how bad 2016 elections yeah. were in terms of false information. And fake news is just a thing now. Um, so we can all safely make a guess which end of the spectrum mm-hmm. these people live at. They mm-hmm. will just consume. Um, there's no reading the label for these kids. Um, so with that, what Instagram has did this election season is gotten rid of recent posts. Oh. Um, it, it, they did not change their scroll habits. They did not change likes. Uh, they did not change how you post, how you share your stories, any of that. What they did do, however, was take away anything that could affect mm. today immediately. I don't know what the timelines are of the posts that you see anymore when you go searching for things on Instagram. Um, It could be from two months ago. It could be from two hours ago. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows anymore. Um, The other thing that Facebook took on, which I will give Z-Man some kudos for, is like this massive campaign about election Mm -hmm. literacy. So every time certain keywords like Biden, Harris, election, vote, anything in that realm ever pops up, they auto-generate this blurb that you click on to go learn more about the state of the elections. They did the same with COVID as well. Like any information or any post that mentions anything about COVID, there will be a sort of pop-up. Exactly. But how many people are clicking on it? Are people just skipping it or, yeah, I mean, there is a way to get information. Great. Uh, And it pops out, but I just ignore it. If it says, oh, do you like COVID-19? No, no, no more. I'm like, no, I'm living it. Bye bye. (laughs) I mean, that is fair. 
So you are somewhere like on the middle of the spectrum, right? Um, as designers, I think, and even as developers, what we can do is yeah. make sure that we present all the information as accurately yeah. as we can. Um, we cannot influence a single yeah. person individually ever. Um, and I think doing that will just cause trouble. Like even just think of the 16-year-old self when your mom told you to wear you know, a slightly longer skirt, like even that pissed us off. Um, now try to be told how to use the internet. It's like, I don't think that's going to end very well. So um, on our end, I think we can just do the best we can to make sure the current, uh, the correct mm-hmm. information surface, the best it is, um, not be biased by political right. donors or otherwise. Um And it's kind of like lawyers, you know, you don't, you don't let your moral compass point south keep it due north all the time um, and work with that. When you're doing whatever, it's in your power in designing the product that I'm presenting you all the options. Whether you consume it in a certain way or not, that's on you. It's like medicine. How you take it, it's on you, but it's available. Yeah. That being said, however, I will hold the social media giants um, responsible for uh, making this consumption habit potent. Um, we did not, at the advent of social media, they could have gone several different ways, I think, but also hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Now that, the you know, millions of people are used to consuming information a certain way, changing that habit yeah. will take a minute. Um, it took almost a decade to build and it's probably going to take three times as longer, if mm-hmm. that's to say anything, um, to undo all of that. So I think as a generation, Correct. millennials in particular, yeah. and the ones coming after and are, you know, positioned very interestingly in the sense mm-hmm. we can affect some real change, especially with the older generations on their way out for all intents and purposes, like, you know, they're not in any kind of authoritative yeah. roles anymore. Uh, yeah, that's how I feel about that. also interesting that how all these uh, major giants they've, they've like been designed and mostly uh, been uh, men who've sort of led this right uh, Instagram, Facebook, all of these Amazon, everything that's a giant right now uh, has been uh, something that has been led by a man uh, then uh, my question is that is woman leadership something that affects um, how uh, the pattern pattern of consumption? Are they more empathetic? Are, do they care more about sort of how uh, something is being consumed? I am going to draw on COVID's example right now. Um, yes. All the women-led countries are faring far <laughs> <Yes>. better. <laughs> I would imagine it's actually interesting, like even with these bigger tech giants and generally, um, you know, all the corporations that exist. And I might talk about Walmart and people in United States are more familiar with that name, but know that they control most of this world's market. Mm -hmm. Like everything that happens on this planet eventually rolls up to like five corporations, I think was a number. And Walmart's one of them. Um, all of these corporations mm-hmm. are like slowly introducing women in leadership roles and not just women, but women of color um, and very diverse backgrounds. And you can see their whole thought process shift. Facebook's election campaign um, and information blasts have been led by their female mm, executives. Um, yeah. 
So I do think women bring, and this might just be, you know, decades and hundreds of years of conditioning as like, you know, we're the more empathetic, we're the fairer gender and all that good stuff. But I think um, it's not all bad. Um, We can be strong Mm -hmm. and we are potently strong in many leadership roles. Seriously, the biggest and most, I think, um, impactful example of our generation will remain how COVID rolled out. Um, and the stark difference exactly. between places like New Zealand and yeah. Germany and well, but US. Among both of us, like between both of us, Bhavya and I, we always say, okay, let's shift to New Zealand, Finland, someplace where they're more prominent. Packing up my bags right now. <laughs> Female leadership, yeah. Exactly. The policies that they also roll out are so different than what we have already seen and sort of felt yeah. like oh, it's a hopeless case. But these women leaderships have given us a sense of hope. Tiny, tiny hope. Yeah. Yeah. Because also in India, um, the policy is to sort of make religion the politics and uh, prioritize religion over anything else. Um, And I never hear about uh, any policies uh, around uh, either COVID, even during the COVID times. There's just been about religion elections or you know building a new parliament building and uh seriously is that your priority right now (laughs) so so uh i think it's always about a show of power when it comes to mostly when it comes to uh at least in india when it when when male politicians are involved yeah. Uh, with fem- even with female politicians, there have been uh, really good examples uh, who've been passionate enough to sort of uh, debate their way through these very tough, hard, uh, you know, hardened politicians. Uh, but what I often see is they are they always uh, get relegated. Like if they slip up even 1%, they really get relegated and get blamed because of their gender. They, you are a woman, yeah, which is correct. why you've got, like, uh, which is why you are not suitable for this role and which mm-hmm. is why you had this, like, slip. Very hard standards to live by. Yeah. And one slip up, it costs you a lot. <laughs> exactly. So as... Vishak has also in a uh, role of leadership. Does this ever like come up to you? Like, even though you're in US, uh, do you face this kind of sexism? Um, it's been interesting with me. Like my experience has been very interesting. Like based yeah. on where I've worked, um, majority of my twelve years I spent in middle of nowhere, Indiana, where I went to school. Um, the landscape and responses to me over there were <laughs> very different mm-hmm. to what it is like in Austin. Once I moved here, um, Indiana was about one, I thought I was always at a disadvantage because one, I was an immigrant and two, like my skin color and my accent gave me away very quickly. Um, two, I have tattoos, which I always mm-hmm. covered up going in for job interviews because it was almost old white men um, who grew up in this tiny little town who were interviewing me. So like I would spare them further <laughs> shock. Um, so jobs yeah. were hard to come by. Um, 
And it was a behavior I carried with me when I moved to Austin. Now, Austin's like far more liberal and it's considered the Silicon Valley of the South. Like tech scene is booming here. And I was doing the same thing when I was going for interviews. Like I would cover up, pull my hair back, um, dial down the accent as as best as I could and like roll with these interviews. Until one day I was interviewing at a startup where... Um, this guy, super casual in jeans yeah. and a t-shirt and a hoodie and flip-flops at a coffee shop is talking to me, asking why I wouldn't loosen up. And I just looked at him and was like, asked, what do you, what do you mean? It's um, like, you are dressed up in a suit. It is 115 degrees outside for context and Celsius. That's like 45 degrees, 50 degrees. Um you're clearly sweating and your answers are so formal and I feel like you're not being yourself. And it's like a whole bunch of cuss words. Like, Thank you. <laughs> Let's be me. <laughs> um, and that was like, that was where I shifted. It was like, okay, so it's mm-hmm. all right to be me a little bit. So that was my early experience, you know, as a young professional and like moving into this leadership role, what it has become, I've noticed at least. And um, the company I work for is great. They they remember that we're humans and not just workers Mm -hmm. and they take good care of us. And we're fairly young in the workforce in the sense, like, I think the oldest member of our team is by team. I mean, Mm -hmm. across the company is about 50. Um, So we're fairly young, all of us. Um, And I swear, we try our hardest to, like, not orient ourselves based on gender and appearance and what have you not. But I think these are habits ingrained in us for such a long time. Like, it's just going to take a minute to go away. Um, So I say all of this not to throw any shit on the company or the people that I work with. I love them. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But sometimes I do feel like my personality works against me because I'm not the typical soft female um, and I'm fairly vocal and strong and I push back, including the owner of the company. I'm fairly um, all right with telling him no. (laughs) I know he's the man cutting my paycheck, but also um, the the area of my expertise is mine. Um, I will take full authority to make decisions and have opinions in that field. Um, so I feel that sometimes it is a point of friction that I'm able to hold my ground, especially when it comes to design world and user experience and things like that. Um, and sometimes I also feel that my curiosities might work against me because things that I don't know about, I ask questions about it relentlessly. I'm almost Mm -hmm. lawyer-like at my job. Um, I need to learn, otherwise it might just hurt the business, um, because of the role I occupy. So not that the questioning part ever gets me into trouble, but I do feel people being very like impatient with me because Mm -hmm. of the number of questions I go through. Um, But I don't know if that's a gender specific thing. Nobody around me really asks that many questions. So I I get it. It's just a me thing. Um, But I do find some, um, what is it? Sombering of people around me when they have to deal with the parts that I'm strong in. Uh, where I present myself in a strong manner. Um, yeah, despite us being as progressive and as open as we are, these are really old, yeah. deep ingrained habits that we're working mm-hmm. on That's undoing. True. It has been internalized so much that it will take time to unravel and be out of our system. Speaking of women of color, have you experienced anything because you're brown? I mean, because you're working in a, let's say, Austin, Texas, which is a predominantly white uh, context. 
have you experienced anything different because you're a woman of color so austin is unique in the sense that it is against almost any stereotype that you might think of when it comes to like white conservative people um in texas it is the one little haven of progressive um liberal thinking amongst rather conservative um general uh population um my gender hasn't quite worked against me as it would have in indiana um and not as much as my skin color either um but wh- as kind as my profession has been my day to day life is very interesting um so let's see every now and then i'll get into a lift where you know drivers are great yeah. they're generally friendly people um but every now and then somebody will latch on to like whatever remnants of an indian accent i have and start talking to me oh, like a girl from the simpsons ouch, ouch. oh no <laughs> not okay not okay and you know they do it so fast that i don't think that they've even thought about how it is not funny like you know the conversation literally goes from hey where are you from oh um i moved to austin 6 years ago but i grew up in india and then immediately the upper wax and kicks in is like hey, this was 3 seconds wow. how did this happen again like i get that this is a very internalized thing but like being conscious and actively avoiding trying to do these mm-hmm. very unfunny things is like a skill that i think many of us are still learning um i tend to have a very physical response every time something like this happens in the sense i really want to punch <laughs> their face in but will not do that out of you know basic civil mm-hmm. decency um these people have also reacted very poorly when i've called them out um on their very blatant semi pseudo racism thing that's going on um they become very defensive that no i'm not racist oh i didn't do that um and i'm not sure why <laughs> i mean you know you did that because you laughed at yourself my- oh so they were aware that they were doing something consciously that is class that, that can be classified as racist but they don't want to be called as racist because it has another layer of uh background exactly. attached to it i think it's just baggage they don't want to deal with <laughs> it is becoming less and less um accepted and something that you can just uncomfortably mm-hmm. laugh off to be racist um there are so many resources on how yeah. to have that conversation with that one uncle <laughs> and what have you not and i think it's great and i'm glad that people are actively acknowledging mm-hmm. this as like a shortcoming as like something that is ethically incorrect uh, but it is also very um yeah. tough battle you know it's just people are used to some things and habits are hard to change even as something as quitting smoking takes 21 days so let mm-hmm. alone your whole true, psychology true. it's going to be difficult and it's a long learning curve but hopeful the needle is yeah. moving forward so we are hopeful what about like in your meetings or anywhere have you experienced a differentiated behavior towards you because you're a woman of color in a leadership position so i've thankfully had um you know the opportunity to work with a lot of brown people actually surprisingly not necessarily from india but mexicans and others um and it has been great um so my uh, tendency to stick out in a room is like far more diluted in Austin than it used to be in Indiana um 
as a woman, sometimes I do feel like uh, presenting myself strongly and having those opinions that I do um, either leads to an impression that is, I don't know, I'm going to drop a word that I probably shouldn't, that I'm either a bitch or I don't know what I'm talking about, so it's worth ignoring. But I haven't quite figured out if that is just my own perception of the situation, but I sometimes feel, leave big meetings feeling like that. And maybe it is just me grappling with um, the, you know, internalized um, perception of women that I'm trying to like break out of and make sure that I don't keep thinking about myself the way everybody mm-hmm. has taught me to think about myself. question was about work from home i i know that your company went completely remote working so has that been your experience with you have lots of pets right so how do you manage that yeah well i have pets they are easy a lot of my co-workers have toddlers um them they are not easy uh, they want mom they want mom and there's like no reasoning with that Uh, my dog I can just toss out in the backyard and it'll be fine Um, but I think at the beginning of this work from home situation I think there was like this unspoken pressure and norm that we must present ourselves formally and as we would at an office where there are no children or animals running around us right Um, the concession of the fact that we were actually at home was completely forgotten um What I have noticed, at least, is that it's been very interesting in the sense we started becoming more forgiving of the form, the 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 formality Mm. rules of being in the office, and like started being more accepting of the casualness that comes from being at home. And now suddenly, I'm starting to see debates pop up on LinkedIn and like other social media whether it's okay to have your kid Mm. on a Zoom call or not, and men respond almost always that it is not okay to have children on the zoom call where the women are saying mm-hmm. yeah don't give a shit um because yeah. these are the mothers they are programmed to you know like we as women were just generally programmed to like take care of our young ones right um it's in our instinct it's our dna like, well, it is it is said that it's in our dna some well it's not a dna but it's just a uh, cultured part which men don't men are not cultured in it's it doesn't exist i think it doesn't exist in the dna per se it's internalized to, in us from the beginning yeah. when it's not internalized in the opposite gender but that's the thing right that uh, one of uh, one of my main friends he told me that by accepting feminism women are giving away something that is unique to them uh, like uh, sensitivity and caring and i was like it shouldn't be unique no. to us uh men should be allowed to be sensitive and to care about uh people around them and feminism doesn't mean that we give up our sensitivity and caring and all the yeah. maternal instincts that you want to call it as it's something related to that and you're correct it shouldn't be unique to one gender yeah, yeah. i think that is like the main tenet of feminism right like it is not this is a female gender trait it is something that everyone can learn really um it's you know caring is caring whether it's for your t-shirt and making sure you put it in the current mm-hmm. uh, correct laundry settings to making sure your dog is fed to making sure your yeah. kid goes to bed at 7 p.m 
caring is caring. Um, the societal um, pressure of like males being a certain way, like toxic mm-hmm. masculinity is a thing, and females being a certain way, hence feminism, is something that I think is being tested very staunchly these days. Uh, but because we work in mostly mm-hmm. legacy industries, um, I come to think of it, there is like no real workplace that is truly new except technology. Um, and even a lot of technology has like the thoughts and philosophies of old white mm-hmm. men who created the yeah. first few tech companies. Um, so we're still we're still working against that, even though the owner of my company is neither old. what well, he is white, but he's not old and he's not conservative by any means. Even he had a coming to Jesus moment when he realized <laughs> we can all work from home. <laughs> which is why he took the decision to like just close the offices permanently and save a buck. Um, so it like actually took him to experience this whole thing to understand that being at home doesn't reduce productivity. Yeah. It actually makes it better. So I think we're at a very similar crossroads when it comes to like um, gender and the role it plays at the workplace and how that affects promotions and perceptions <clears throat> and what have you not, where it is okay to challenge yeah. the status quo. And I think we have more and more resources, even for the ones who are dealing with it for the first time and just, you know, speaking their mind the way they see fit, um, speaking from a place of anger sometimes, which is very, very justified um, to have these conversations in a more empathetic and productive manner. And as much as my entire feminist being wants, like, you know, punch patriarchy in the face and just like give them the bird and move mm-hmm. on with my life. Um I also believe in healthy mm. conversation. Um, not that having this conversation justifies the opposite viewpoint. It at least helps me understand how to change yeah. their viewpoint. Um, comprehension is the first step to like affecting any of this change, right? But do you think that since we have now more of a virtual interaction, these gendered and gendered and workplace interactions will become more balanced because it's a virtual interaction and you're not constantly in presence of each other do you think the stereotypes will go less or will increase somebody actually tried to like quantify how much um this is such a stupid thing to even try to quantify like how much money women lose by the virtue of being home and them having to like divert more time and attention towards their home and children duties I think the whole premise was that if women were telecommuting so working remotely one day a week and the other four, they were at office, they would lose $660 a year. This roughly translates to about $3,000-ish a year for those who work from home for four days um, in a week. One, I was fairly offended that somebody quantified how women lose money by the virtue of working at home um, without even taking into account the mental peace that they gain and how that productivity might increase because Mm -hmm. they're able to keep an eye on their child, for example, um, instead of having to worry about who's going to pick them up from school, at least life in the U S is very dependent on a car. (laughs) I have coworkers who would drive an hour and a half at the, at 5 PM to go pick up their Mm -hmm. kid from daycare and then go home, um, in peak traffic. These women are getting their hour and a half back. They're able to pay attention to their child, put them to bed, read them a story, spend more time and be very actively involved in their development Mm -hmm. than they couldn't before this work from home happened. Um, So to try to quantify how being at home for women loses them money is kind of biased and not 
not great at like actually accounting yeah. for all the variables yeah. and presenting the other side where how much money does the business gain by women correct, being correct. at home. That should have been the story rather than the other way around. But I also read it up somewhere that right. um, from the work from home situation, women were getting less um, sort of task leadership jobs or managing jobs or managing tasks whatever you want to call it because they were believed that their attention will be uh, distributed among so many things managing at home whereas men they were they were being treated like as usual they were given tasks okay you manage a team or you manage a task but women were not women were just given what do you call those secretarial or supporting tasks also i would add to that is that in india uh, we live in a uh, family structure like uh, women are generally not living independently uh, and what often happens is for women uh, their work becomes a safe space uh, uh, and or like somewhere they could be themselves and or uh, if their husbands or someone in their family is a uh, physically abusive then it becomes a space where they are away or even verbally abusive then it becomes a space that they are away from all of that so working from home at least in india uh, and this is just the government number has increased uh, physical abuse at home uh, by 50% yeah uh, so in reality it could be anywhere uh, I mean that that's true not only for India but other contexts also in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia the violence yeah. at home has seen tremendous change. I mean in Singapore itself I read a statistics where the helpline center for women uh received thirty percent more calls or assistance during this work from home lockdown phase. That is just ninety one days that we had, and it was yeah. kind of uh, it's not surprising but surprising again that. within a very short span the women the consequences of women have increased three folds four folds than what have been on men just because of the uh, covid guess work from home has both benefits and many many downfalls i also i think then i think uh, as everything else uh, it's nothing should be proposed as this one uh, size fits all solution right mm-hmm. uh, for some people of course working from home would suit them better but for some people they need that physicality even if there isn't an abuser at home uh, they might need that physicality of a separation of uh, a home space and a working space uh, i think this pandemic has done some interesting things and you guys are very correct to like talk about um, the abusive and domestic violence situation like it's a it's a thing even on this side of the world um yeah very potent especially with children um being involved in these kind of things but um i'm going to add like a, another very grim statistic to this whole thing that um at least the american labor force has witnessed um 1.6 or so million um mothers take a hit um and lose their jobs over men um you know moms have been a part of the labor force without any hiccups or at least 
none quite as drastic as what the pandemic has forced um, and pre-pandemic uh, very successfully. But with pandemic, mothers are more likely to be victims of furloughs, uh, layoffs. Um, and by mothers, I mean even expecting mothers. Uh, but they're the ones who are usually um, deemed yeah. easy load to get rid of. But that being said pandemic just even by like we talked about okay. New Zealand and Germany's yeah. response to COVID and how they're doing faring far better than the rest of the world um, it has forced more women into c-suites ironically surprisingly I, I don't know it caught it surprised me uh, to see that like women were taken on uh, more women were becoming mm. CEOs and COOs of like big fortune 500 companies um I think CVS was the last one to have gained um, a female CEO. Uh, CVS is a giant pharmaceutical and medical company mm-hmm. in the U.S. It is hurtful to see the immediate consequences, but I think in the long term, we are headed towards some seriously good chops for and opportunities for women where we end up in very impactful roles in the long haul. That's the hope, yeah, that we move forward in a more positive way. Absolutely. And that's all we can hope for and aspire for. <laughs> so let's end this uh, episode on this very hopeful note. And we yes. would like to thank you, Vishaka, we, Vishaka <laughs> for coming on and uh, joining us and talking to us and, and telling us all the benefits and the impact of user experience design. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Vishaka. And this was a very enlightening session as well because... Um, you don't really think about who's designing uh, uh, when you're consuming data, uh, who's designing the way you consume data. So it's a very enlightening session in that way as well. Yes. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, you guys, for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Yes. So uh, I would just also like to invite anyone who would like to uh, color on our wall with us. They can also now drop us an email on breakingbuds at gmail.com and let us know how you can participate um, in a conversation with us. Thanks a lot for listening in. Thank you. Bye-bye.